Our Father, our hearts, our ears, our minds are open. As we come to the voice of God, would you in a special way send your Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and to engrace us so that what we learn we would be able to apply and be more Christ-like. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oliver Wendell Holmes, the legendary Supreme Court Justice in the early part of the last century, had a reputation for being rather absent-minded. One day on a train trip out of Washington, D.C., Mr. Holmes was studying a pending case when the conductor came by and asked him for his ticket. The eminent jurist immediately began a search of all of his many pockets, but to no avail, he could not find his ticket. And as the, as the embarrassment increased with every second, the conductor explained, Don't be concerned, Mr. Holmes. We know who you are. When you return to Washington, you can send us the ticket at your convenience. Holmes lowered his head and shook his head sadly and said, Thank you, my good man, but you don't seem to understand the problem. It's not a question of whether I'll pay the fare. The problem is, where am I going? I have often wondered whether we are like that as we follow Christ. On a train, on this, on this trip of discipleship, where are we going? What are we in this for? What exactly is demanded of us? Mark's gospel from where my text is taken this morning is structured as one long trip that begins in Galilee and ends in Jerusalem. It lays out for us this trip of discipleship. It teaches us what it means to follow Jesus Christ as a disciple. And towards the end of the gospel, Mark 14, 1 through, through 11, I believe we will see an important answer to this question. What exactly does God demand of us? What does God want of us? So Mark 14, 1 through 11. The gospel is drawing to a close. The passion is approaching. Tension is building. Inky dark clouds loom on the horizon. Audible thunder. Palpable tragedy. And here, visible treachery. And embedded in this plotting of the betrayal of our Lord is the story of an anointing. 14 verse 1. Now the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by cunning and to kill him. The setting is probably in one of the grander rooms of the temple. It's an official scene attended their gathering of the elite of Jerusalem, the chief priests and the scribe. It's, it's, it's an official scene, and, and if you listen carefully, you can even hear the swish of their magnificent 
robes. Candlelit settings in one of the grander rooms on the temple precincts. And in hushed tones, they are whispering malignantly. They are discussing how to kill Jesus. For they were saying, verse 2, not during the feast, lest there be a riot of the people. Did you see that raucous crowd of Ignorant pilgrims from Galilee, they're saying to themselves. That carpenter riding in on a donkey and those braying jackasses yelling, Hosanna, who does he think he is? Absolutely out of control. But I tell you, our hands are tied. If we touch him, there will be a riot. There must be some other way. And then Mark, if you imagine him as the director of this movie, yells, cut. And the scene changes. This is a typical Markan sandwich. That's the technical word for the story. It's a typical structure that Mark uses at least six times in his gospel. He starts a story. He breaks it off in midstream. Begins a second story. Finishes that. And then comes back to the first one and finishes that. I like to think of it as a hamburger. A bun. Half of a bun. The meat patty. And then the other half of the bun. So we have seen the first half of the outer story. So he, now here is the meat patty, verse 3. And he was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. While he was reclining at the table. Now, not only was Jesus in a leper's house, hobnobbing with a social outcast, he was even eating with the pariah, Simon the leper. So notice the contrast between the outer and the inner stories. The elite of Jerusalem meeting in and round the temple. Royalty. And then we have this. A Galilean preacher with a bunch of assorted fishermen and others. A ragtag assembly. Not in the temple or any place decent. But in the unclean house of an unclean man. Simon the leper. Deplorable. Verse 3. While he was reclining at the table, a woman came. Oh dear, now there's a woman involved in this as well. Doesn't bode well, not at all. Actually, actually if you have been following Mark in the strip of discipleship all the way from Mark 1, you might have noticed as you read Mark's gospel that he definitely has a soft spot for women. Every single one of the women that Jesus comes into contact with in Mark's gospel is an exemplar, is a heroine, in stark contrast to those bumbling, bungling males who slouch around tottering and teetering all over the place. And we get a good dose of that here as well. Verse 3. And he was in the house, he was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. While he was reclining at the table for a meal, a woman came. Who was she? What was her name? Where did she come from? Had she been invited to this meal? Probably not. If she were, she is definitely running late. The meal has already begun. A woman came having an alabaster jar of very expensive ointment of pure nard. Breaking the alabaster jar, she poured it over his head. Oh my goodness. This is highly unusual. People did anoint their dinner guests at that time, but this? This wasn't her guest. 
This wasn't even her house, but crack goes the bottle and glob, 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 glob. Mark takes pains to describe the contents of the jar. An alabaster jar of very expensive ointment of pure nard. This is no ordinary gift. This is an astounding sacrifice. Firstly, it was profuse. It was profuse. She broke the bottle. She destroyed the jar. The jar shattered, the perfume gone forever. The totality of her sacrifice, it was profuse. Notice Jesus' comment a few verses down in verse 8. What she could, she did. She did all that she could do. She gave all that she had. Everything. It was profuse. It was not only profuse. Secondly, it was also pure. It was pure in quality. The pure nard, purest nard of the highest quality. The, the best. This is no leftover charity after I buy my SUV and my 52-inch television and remodel my kitchen. This is no gimmicky gift to gain me some tax advantages. This was the best she had, the best she could find, and the best she could give, she gave. It was pure. It was profuse, it was pure, and thirdly, it was precious. Very expensive, it tells us in verse 3. Later we find out that it could have been sold for 300 denarii. One denarius was the average wage of a laborer for a single day. In other words, 300 denarii is the annual income of your average worker. Your income for a year. Gone. In one stroke. There it is, dripping down Jesus' hair, beard, shoulders, robe. This is not an, oh, where's my dirham, my checkbook, Sunday morning scramble for a few currency notes. This was Profuse, pure, and precious. Last week was Thanksgiving week in the United States, where the bird of choice cooked for dinner is the turkey. Several years ago, one Thanksgiving season, one of the biggest of the turkey purveyors in the United States, the Butterball Turkey Company, set up a hotline to answer consumers' questions on how to prepare the bird. One woman apparently called in to inquire about cooking a turkey that had been in her freezer for 23 years. The other day I found some ice cream that had been in my freezer for six years, but... But this is 23 the operator who took her call warned her that, you know, it may be okay if the freezer's temperature has been fine all these decades, but we will not recommend your eating it. The flavor has surely deteriorated. The good lady replied, yeah, yeah, that's what we thought. We'll just give it to the church. <laughs> but this was no shabby 
leftover gift. This was no hand-me-down that this woman had got. She didn't like, she didn't need. Give it to Jesus. This was precious. 300 denarii, your annual salary. For this woman, it might have been what she expected to live on in the future. Her pension. Her retirement. Her health care. 300 denarii. It was everything. Precious. Gone. No wonder it provoked such a nasty reaction from the bystanders. Verse 4. But some of them were saying among themselves, Why has this waste of ointment taken place? What did you do, woman? Unbelievable. Absolute waste. Waste. Dreadful waste. Verse 5. For this ointment can be sold for over 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they were scolding him. I bet the sum in verse 4 and the they in verse 5 probably included Jesus' disciples who had been accompanying him on this journey to Jerusalem. I bet they joined in this outburst of scolding. We don't have any money to waste, they may have said. Look, Jesus had to borrow a donkey to ride into town. We're setting up a kingdom here, lady. We need money for iPhones and staplers and laptops. Hey, are you just pouring this stuff down the drain? Good grief. But Jesus said, verses 6 and 7, Leave her. Why are you causing her trouble? A good deed she has done to me, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you can, you can show kindness to them. But you do not have me always. This this statement from Jesus is often misunderstood as some kind of neglect of the poor. Not at all. This is not a question of compassion and mercy. Of course Jesus was concerned about the poor. Just a few chapters ago in chapter 10, he had told the rich young ruler who came to him to sell all he had and give to the poor. So this has got nothing to do with compassion or the lack thereof. Instead, this has got everything to do with the priority of Jesus' mission. Why do I say that? Verse 7, you do not have me always. What does it mean, you do not have me always? Simply this, Jesus was going to die. Mark wants us to take careful note that this woman understood that Jesus was going to die. Verse 8, what she could, she did. She anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Here it is again. This is key. She knew what was going to happen to Jesus. She understood his mission. Now, why is this significant? Why is Mark making a big deal of this woman understanding Jesus' mission? You see, Jesus had told his disciples at least three times before this that he was going to die. Those are the three passion predictions in the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. That was his mission. He was going to die. And how did this, these testosterone-drenched, Y-chromosome-laden paragons of masculinity respond? The first time Jesus predicted his passion in Mark 8, Simon Peter rebukes him. Hey, come here a minute. What's all this stuff about dying? Rubbish. That's not what kings do. They conquer their capitals, capture their palaces, 
and occupy their thrones. Here, Jesus, let me, let me tell you exactly what to do. Rocky, that's, that's in the Greek. Rocky's got it all under control. I'll get you to Jerusalem and put you on the throne, and then we'll reign happily ever after. Get it? And Jesus responds, Get thee behind me, Satan. They didn't understand Jesus had to die. They didn't understand his mission. The second time Jesus predicted his passion in Mark chapter 9, these guys weren't even listening. They are off on a tangent discussing who is the greatest. Hey, I was the first one called. I'm the greatest. Yeah, but you're just a primitive fisherman. I work for the government. I'm a tax collector. I'm the greatest. And then two other guys go, cash. You've got to have cash, man, in this new kingdom we're setting up. Now, our father Zebedee, you guys ever heard of Zebedee and Sons Incorporated? Multinational fishing company with branches in Dallas, Sydney, Manila, Tokyo, and Dubai. Jesus needs cash, boys, and we got cash. We are the greatest. They didn't understand Jesus had to die. They didn't understand his mission. And the third time Jesus predicted his passion in Mark chapter 10, things get worse. All right, all right. All, all this stuff about dying is fine. If that's the way you want it, that's okay. But at some point, Jesus, we've got to be thinking ahead. Now, John and I, my brother John and I, we've, we've had a lot of leadership experience. We've been reading John Maxwell and Peter Drucker and all the latest stuff on management. So when you get on your throne in Jerusalem, look, put me on your right and my kid brother John on your left. We'll run the whole show for you. And you can hang out at the beach teaching and healing and doing your stuff. Together we can go places. Jesus, J, Jesus James, and John. 3J Enterprises. How, how does that sound? They didn't understand Jesus had to die. They didn't understand his mission. All they can come up with are noisy words, strident objections, stupid arguments, consumed with self-interest, choked with self-promotion, and abysmally ignorant of Jesus' mission. They didn't get it. But she did. This woman understood what Jesus was about. She knew he had to die. And did you notice? She says not a word in the story. She doesn't open her mouth even once. But she opens her heart in a wordlessly eloquent gesture of extravagant sacrifice. Profuse pure, precious. Because she got it. She understood Jesus' mission. She understood he had to die. And so she was the true disciple because she understood and responded to Jesus' mission with an act of extravagant sacrifice. Verse 9. Truly I say to you, Jesus replies to her, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be spoken of in memory of her. Not only was her deed profuse, pure, and precious, fourthly, it was also praiseworthy. Praiseworthy. This no-name, one-verse, 
mysterious woman, unappreciated, unsung, insignificant. This woman, ironically, will never be forgotten. She will be part of the gospel, Jesus promises, because this is what the gospel in its broadest sense means, to understand my mission and to give your all for it. She had heard. She had understood. And now she responded with an extravagant sacrifice that was profuse, pure, precious, and praiseworthy. This woman was the prototype of a devoted disciple. She gave all. And those macho guys, they gave nothing. In fact, one of them was the agent of Jesus' death. So here's the other half of the first story, the other half of the bun, verses 10 and 11. And Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went away to the chief priests in order to give him over or betray him. When they heard, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he was seeking how to give him over at an opportune time. She gave to Jesus. He gave Jesus over. She gives money for Jesus' burial. He is given money for Jesus' death. Devoted disciple on one side, double-crossing deceiver on the other. What will you do for the Lord you love? Hers was an act of extravagant sacrifice. Profuse, she gave everything. Pure, she gave the best. Precious, she gave much. Praiseworthy, Christ was pleased with her. What will you give? I submit to you that the Holy Spirit through Mark calls upon each one of us to make some extravagant sacrifices for the Lord, the one who died. Because he paid the ultimate price for his mission. As we follow him on this trip of discipleship, we too are called to extravagance in sacrifice. What will we do for Christ? If you are new to Christianity, the answer is straightforward. You must place your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Believing in your heart that Jesus Christ Son of God, came down to earth, died for you on the cross, and paid the price for your sins fully, finally, and forever. And at that instant of belief, you have moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You have become a child of God. For those of us who have already placed our trust in Christ, I want to challenge us to give something profuse, pure, precious, and praiseworthy. I know many of you have already made extravagant sacrifices. Lives have been changed, priorities have been readjusted, much, much has been given up. Of course, in the different stations that God has placed us, no doubt the sacrifices will be different. For some, it may be a major turning point in life, a dramatic change of direction. 
a young couple taking a drastic step to refocus their family upon God and His service. Middle-aged folks volunteering their energies, giving of their time for the Lord's work. Empty nesters, children who are parents whose children have left the home, stepping out in faith, maybe entering foreign missions. Elderly individuals pouring out their lives into younger Christians. Or it may even be a substantial financial gift to God's work, a significant sacrifice. After all, that's what this woman gave, an incredibly extravagant financial gift. For those of you listening to me who may be single, I issue a specific challenge. Have you ever considered remaining single for the Lord? By choice, for life, unto Christ, in community? And yes, some will call it a waste, dreadful waste. When I made that decision 25 years ago to remain celibate for the ministry, I heard that. But wherever you are, whatever you do, in the limited days that we have left, the Holy Spirit asks us, child of God, what extravagant sacrifice will you make that is profuse, pure, precious, and praiseworthy? As a young Irish woman working in England in the 1800s, Amy Carmichael decided to answer God's call to serve in the mission field. She was twice rejected for medical reasons, but she eventually found a mission agency willing to put her on a ship and send her to India. She arrived on the coast of India with a tropical fever and a temperature of 105. The missionaries who met her at the boat believed she wouldn't last six months. But Amy recovered. And she never, ever returned home. Extravagant sacrifice. She wrote, If the ultimate, the hardest, cannot be asked of me. If the ultimate, the hardest, cannot be asked of me, I know nothing, nothing, of Calvary love. Extravagant sacrifice. So she reached out to the poorest, the youngest, the most despised, especially the babies and the children given over to temples for ritual prostitution. The children called Amy Amma, mother. That ministry, Donauer Fellowship, is still thriving today after a century. Extravagant sacrifice. Amma's prayers and stories and devotions filled 35 books back home in Britain, but not once, not once did she return home to hear the praises of her friends and supporters. In fact, in 1919, her name was published in King George V's list of birthday honors, the equivalent of a woman getting a knighthood. And when Amy found out about that, she requested that her name be removed. To Amy, anything that called attention to herself stole attention from the God she served. Extravagant sacrifice. Amy Carmichael's mission trip 
ended 55 years later when she died at the age of 83 in India. And during that time, she had rescued over a thousand abused, abandoned, and enslaved children. Extravagant sacrifice. Missionary life, she once said. Missionary life is simply a chance to die. Devoted disciple. What will your extravagant sacrifice be? Let us profuse, pure, precious, and praiseworthy. Let's pray. Were the whole realm of nature mine, That were an offering far too small. Because love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Our Father, these are tough words for us to hear. Rooted as we are here on earth. Enslaved as we are to the things of the world shackled to the comforts of this temporary transient life. Thank you for the example of this remarkable woman. Thank you for teaching us through your word about her. Father, would you strengthen us through your Holy Spirit that we too, like her, may be able to follow Jesus Christ who gave his all first for us. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.